and it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. Glad you could join us. This morning, again from Jude verses 2 through 4, we see that false teachers are sneaky. And they have two serious errors. Immorality and denial of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, with more from God's Word, here's Pastor Robert Elliott. False teachers are two things. They are sneaky. They don't walk into your Bible study or into our church worship service and say, I'm a false teacher, pleased to meet you. They're sneaky. They don't stand out at first. They sing our songs, they open our Bible. They talk our language. They are chameleons. They blend in by design. They're wearing evangelical church camel. They seemingly are just like a homogenization of orthodox believers. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. You may be thinking, Pastor, I understand that's a problem. I understand it could be a problem, right, with my kids or my brothers and sisters in Christ in this church. I get it. I understand that there are false teachers, and I understand they need to be confronted, but Pastor, I don't have any formal Bible education. How can I contend with false teachers? Well, first, by not being one. Second, by not learning error from one. How would you not learn error from one except you know the truth well? You have to know the truth well to spot error, right? Especially if it's parsed and nuanced and just tweaked a little bit. I'm a fisherman. I don't throw a big fluorescent stone into the water and hope to catch a trophy fish. I throw something in the water that looks just like what they like to eat, except there's a barbed hook in my lure or my bait. False teachers are fishermen. We have to know the truth. And if we know the truth well enough, we will spot the error. And if you have anything that smells fishy, Speak to a Christian who's more mature in the church family, doesn't have to be a pastor, and say, is this right? I've never learned this. I've, I've never heard this. I've heard other things that are opposite to this. Is this wrong? Ask. Let's go back to false teachers. Not only are they sneaky, and not only are they camouflaged to blend right in, but there's something else we learn about them in verse 4. Again, verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There are two errors that are pointed out in verse 4 that these false teachers consistently and characteristically make. Number one error, a license for immorality. They give permission and try to twist the scriptures to give permission for being immoral, oftentimes sexually immoral. And they approve immoralities for themselves, and they approve immoralities for others. 
Usually by the time they're doing that blatantly, uh, they've crept in (laughs) and they've tricked us. We've invited them to our tables to eat. We've let them into our Sunday school classes. We have let them in. But then eventually, they will have the error of a license to, for immorality. That's what licentiousness is. The second error they often have is a denial of Jesus Christ. Deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. That means they discount the gospel. They discount who Jesus Christ was and is, and they discount what Jesus Christ did on the cross and in the empty sepulcher. They deny Jesus Christ. Now, will you please think this through with me? The first readers of the book of Jude had every book of the New Testament that we have except the Gospel of John, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, and the Revelation. That's simply because the Holy Spirit didn't reveal John, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation until after the date of this letter. But all of the rest of the New Testament, the first readers of the book of Jude had in their hands, in their house churches. They knew who Jesus Christ was. They knew who Jesus Christ is. They they knew what Jesus Christ came to do. They knew about the substitutionary atonement on the cross and the shed blood of Christ. They knew about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. They knew the truth. They could spot a false teacher who was denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what? We have all of the New Testament. We have all the books that they had back then, plus we have the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the Revelation. We have the whole thing. We have no excuse. We can't say, well, I didn't know about Jesus' person or work. Because these false teachers were these ways back then, it was absolutely fair to deem them to be three things. To deem them to be under God's condemnation, to deem them to be secret subversives, and to deem them to be ungodly. And because false teachers are still these ways, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Because false teachers are still these ways, it is absolutely reasonable and right to deem the false teachers of our generation as being under God's condemnation, of being subversives in a secret manner, and of being ungodly. It's not mean. It's truth. It's not harsh. It's helpful. So let's speak today to what's going on with us. False teachers are all around us. I'm not going to name them. You name them. You know the truth. You name them. False teachers are all around us. And it's no wonder that Jude was led of the Holy Spirit to switch from writing about our common salvation so he could instead write about our contention earnestly for the faith against false teachers. And so, do you hear your name? Carol, ready, steady, go. Peter, ready, steady, go. Heads up. Listen here. I'm talking to you. Hello. God wants your attention. Let's be people who give him 
our attention, not just when the Word of God is preached, but when we go into God's book with the author of God's book living in our hearts, illuminating our understanding to God's book, may we give the Lord our attention as we study and memorize God's Word ourselves. Of course, Hurricane Matthew has swept over the Caribbean and in the Bahamas in particular. It was the first hurricane that uh, me and my family ever endured. And uh, in the quieter moments uh, during that hurricane and since, I've been able to think about some life lessons that I've learned, and I thought I might share those with you this morning. The storm taught me that it's clear that we must handle people with care. It's clear that we must handle people with care. When we go to Galatians 5 and consider the fruit of the Holy Spirit who lives inside a true believer in Jesus, it says in verses 22 and 23 of Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I wanted to make it my practice, and I continue to want to make it my practice, if I'm going to err in a human relationship, that I would err on the side of grace, that I would be quick to give people better than they deserve, that if I'm going to make a mistake in this, that I'd err on the side of kindness versus criticism or harshness or anything like that. The storm taught there is a point in time when it's just too late to do anything else. Hebrews 9.27, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, in the spiritual life, in terms of eternity, there is a point in time for an individual when it's too late to do anything else. Death is that time that once we die, judgment comes. There is no second chance. There is not prayer for the dead. There is not a purgatory. Bible doesn't teach that. It says that there is a time that comes in every individual's life when it's too late to do anything about Jesus Christ. And so our decisions about Christ must be made while we are still alive. I've made a decision for Christ to be your Savior. You don't get to do that if you don't do that. You don't get to do that after you've died. And in the hurricane, same way, there was a point in time for all of us when it was just simply too late for any of us to do anything more. Uh, as I told you in previous broadcasts, this was the first hurricane that me and uh, my wife and our son and our dog went through. And I remember when the storm was raging and the wind was howling and I heard debris hitting our storm shutters, lying in bed, uh, looking at the ceiling with my wife. And I remember thinking, well, everything I could do, I have done. So now I rest our safety with God. I couldn't run out in the high, very high winds and put the shutters up. I couldn't go to the grocery store and buy some more milk. I had to do all those preparations before the storm hit. 
There is a time, a point in time, when it's just too late to do anything else. Couldn't fill the, the water in the bathtubs after the water went. Couldn't buy batteries after the storm hit. Couldn't buy candles, flashlights. So it is within the spiritual life. There comes a point, and it's physical death for every person. When you die physically, then it will be too late to do anything about Jesus. I saw the lesson that adversity galvanizes. Proverbs 17, verse 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. You know, when we went through that storm, we really discovered quickly who our true friends are. And, you know, they were there for us, and we were there for them. And it brought us together uh, at our church, Calvary Bible Church on Collins Avenue. There, the men gathered uh, the Sunday afternoon prior to Matthew, and together they rolled up their sleeves and, and took on the job of, of hurricane shuttering all of the, the buildings uh, here uh, at 62 Collins Avenue. It galvanized the men who worked, and, and I believe there was a lady there too. And uh, the first Sunday after Matthew passed through, uh, we didn't have electricity in the building. We, our generator wasn't available, and so we met in the parking lot to worship God in folding chairs. I'd say over 200 of us did that, and it galvanized us to, together. And then after that first Sunday after the storm, the next two Sundays, we still had issues with electricity and uh, generator and air conditioning and so forth. And so we met in our, our Earl Weech Auditorium, and it pulled us together. It pulled us together in loving God, and it pulled us tighter together in loving each other. An important lesson from the hurricane is the church is not a building. The church is not a building. The church is people who go to a building. And so in some senses, when, and I say it too, when, when we say we're going to church, if we mean we're going to a building, we've got it wrong. But if in saying we're going to church, we mean we're going to gather with brothers and sisters in Christ, we're going to assemble, then that's, that's accurate. Now God has blessed us with a nice building. And there's nothing wrong with a building, but the building isn't the church. We can have a church without having a building. The underground church in China, immense in size, growing rapidly. They don't have buildings largely. They meet secretly in buildings that aren't church buildings. Church is not a building. 1 Peter 2, 7 to 10. This precious value then is for those who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But, so he swings from talking about rejectors of Christ, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. 
You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. The New Testament consistently teaches that the church is people. The church are the church is redeemed sinners. And so the church is not a building. And I think the storm reminded us of that. It seemed to me that the storm caused the nation to return to her roots. Psalm 33, starting at verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Of course, we know that that's fundamentally a reference to the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, the Jews. But by extension, blessed is any nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. The Bahamas have been blessed over the years because we have seen, the God, seen God as our Lord. It reflects in the Constitution and other legal implications in the land. But I think like any nation, the danger is for spiritual drift, for a drifting away from God's authority and God's will. It seems to me the storm did something in some quarters to return the nation of the Bahamas to her roots. For instance, we, my wife and I just delighted as we were in our home without electricity, as the storm was still raging, as um, we were listening to a battery-operated radio, ZNS AM radio. They played Christian music. That was great. And their on-air personalities called the listeners to pray to God, called their listeners to trust God, not be fearful, and to tr called their listeners to praise God. That was just outstanding. So sad to say, I'm a U.S. and a Canadian citizen. I don't know that that would happen in the Canada or the United States because of political correctness, which is incorrectness. But I mean, it's terrific that, that I believe the storm called our nation to return to her roots, God. It's time for answers to your questions. We urge you to take a moment and get a pen and paper and take down the references used so that you can do your own study later on. We here at Echoes of Calvary are always excited to receive your letters of support and your questions, which we seek to answer right away and also here on the show. You can send us your letters at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com. Com. Today, Pastor Elliot draws from Carl Laney's excellent book, Answers to Tough Questions. This book was published back in 1997. And once again, here is Pastor Robert Elliot. Here's a question based on John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, which I'll read. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited, and his disciples to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the, the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. 
So there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and then when men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer, you have kept the good wine until now. This is the beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, here's the question. Since Jesus made wine, is it wrong for Christians to drink it? Well, the Bible quite clearly condemns drunkenness, which is an improper use of an alcoholic beverage. You see that in Ephesians 5 verse 18. God's judgment on an improper use of wine appears to be reflected in his judgment in the Old Testament on Nadab and Abihu. We see that in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 to 7. This incident is followed by God's instruction to Aaron, quote, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you may not die, verse 9. The Bible also provides cautions regarding the misuse of alcoholic beverages. See Proverbs 23, verses 29 to 35. Uh, and then Proverbs 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker and strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. End of quote. In keeping with such warnings, Paul says that elders and deacons are not to be, quote, addicted to wine. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, and then verse 8. In spite of these warnings, the scriptures recognize that wine is one of God's gifts to people. We see that in Psalm 104, verse 15. Wine is associated with joy and blessing in Deuteronomy 7, verse 13. In Ecclesiastes 9, verses 7 to 10. In Amos chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. And in Joel chapter 3, verse 18. This perspective is reflected by Paul's New Testament words in Colossians 2, verses 20 to 23, and in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5, where under inspiration, he condemns asceticism, which was the uh, deprivation of uh, things that God has approved of in moderation. So it is clear on the basis of historical research that in times past, Bible times, wine was diluted with water. The ratio would vary from place to place, but generally it was one part of wine to three parts of water. Only barbarians would drink unmixed wine. This cultural issue has bearing on the modern use of wine. Quite obviously, the wine purchased in stores today is unmixed. Its alcoholic content is considerably greater than that of the wine of the first century. The high alcohol content of today's undiluted wine has led to much abuse and addiction and heartbreak and even death. Alcoholism is the third largest health problem in the United States and is said to damage directly the lives of one of every four or five Americans. Alcohol-related deaths run as high as 200,000 per year in the U.S. 
half of all the traffic fatalities and one-third of all the traffic injuries are alcohol-related in the United States. It has been estimated that 10 million Americans are alcoholics, with more than 3 million of them being teenagers. Tragic. Dangerous. Destructive. Every Christian must make a decision whether to use or avoid the use of alcoholic beverages. There is no proof text for total abstinence, nor is there any text advocating social drinking. One must be guided by one's conscience and by the principles of the Word of God. This is an issue where consciences may differ, such as we see in Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, and the application of the scriptural principles may vary depending upon the situation at hand. The principle of love limited liberty, love limited liberty, must be kept in view when making a decision on this matter. The use of wine in moderation is an area of liberty, yet Paul suggests that Christian liberty should always be exercised with love and self-restraint. See 1 Corinthians 8, verses 9 to 13. He specifically declares, quote, It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. That's in Romans 14, verse 21. Let me just go on record as saying, as senior pastor teacher of Calvary Bible Church and as the radio Bible teacher of Echoes of Calvary, I do not use my liberty to have alcohol in moderation at all. I abstain from alcohol and so does my wife so that we can be a good example and run no risk of enslavement to the excessive use of alcohol and addiction. We choose not to use a liberty so as to help others who look to us as spiritual leaders, either in our church family, in the community, or you, our precious listening audience, wherever you might be. You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship services are at 8 a.m. and 11 a.m., in our sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us. Feel free to write us at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, Everyone needs a savior.